Greetings, happy Thanksgiving holiday weekend, and welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hooley. I hope your Thanksgiving was enjoyable and memorable. Mine surely was. Well, this is episode number nine in our series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on my latest book by the same title. If you haven't got a copy yet, you can pick one up on Amazon.com. And if you can't afford to buy one, you can download a free PDF copy from my website at DougHooley.com. We're currently in the Gospel of Matthew, taking a look at only scripture that directly pertains to the called out when they gather in the name of Jesus, what their basis for doing so is, what it is they're supposed to accomplish together as a group, what's their purpose and mission. And speaking of mission, we're going to start out today with what has been called by many the great commission. So how about it? Are you ready to witness me leading another sacred cow out to pasture? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, you'll find what some have labeled the Great Commission. The Great Commission is a 19th century man-made term almost every evangelical Christian is familiar with and believes is the prime directive given by Jesus to the church. You may find such a heading in your Bible, the Great Commission, when you reach Matthew 28, 19. However, you won't find those words in Scripture. And prior to 200 years ago, you won't find what the term represents emphasized in the church. What man has singled out, prioritized, and labeled as the greatest of all commissions for the called out to accomplish on this earth— is based on the following passage found in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Let me read that. And Jesus came and spake unto them, his remaining eleven disciples, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I read you that from the King James Version. You'll come to understand why here in a little while. You can also find this story found in Mark chapter 16, verses 14 to 18. Well, this passage is misunderstood from the start. Go, ye therefore, reads like an imperative command, like do it and do it now. And it's read as though it applies to disciples of Christ throughout all time. In actuality, the words of Jesus should be translated not go therefore, but as you go. In other words, as you go on your way, you'll baptize and teach. It was a prophetic statement Jesus made about his disciples' future. It was not a command. Jesus was speaking directly to the individuals who had been at his side for the past three years or so. Those who were direct eyewitnesses to his life, his teaching, and what he had commanded. What Jesus was doing was commissioning his disciples to be his uniquely qualified apostles, those whom he trusted to represent him and speak on his behalf. He was sending them out in his name with the knowledge that he had been given authority over all heaven and earth. Please indulge me for just a minute. 
All those who are listening who receive this or any other in-person commission from Jesus say amen. Okay, all those who personally witnessed the life of Jesus and all he commanded, give me an amen. Well, assuming, I think it's a safe assumption, you didn't say amen either time, I have good news and bad news. First, the bad news, if you want to look at it that way. Jesus has not made you to be one of his apostles. Although you may be a disciple or student of his, a called-out follower of him, or his voluntary bondservant, those are all great things. You do not have first-hand knowledge of him, nor did you receive a personal commission from him to speak on his behalf. You're not qualified to be an apostle. He did not personally educate or credential you. You did not witness his life, so you can't tell others about what you heard Jesus say and do. Well, that's okay. The Apostle Paul, who Jesus did personally call and instruct on what he said, speaking on behalf of Jesus, tells us that not all are made to be apostles. Now, the good news. The rest of us non-apostles make up the nations that the apostles went to. We make up those who have received the commands of Jesus that the apostles have passed on by way of the Bible. Besides their in-person ministry in the first century, several of those present at the commissioning of the apostles were responsible for what became our New Testament. That contains the information Jesus wanted them to pass on. That is the thing that made it possible for anyone in the world who has been called to become a disciple of Christ. It is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. What am I saying? <laughs> Let me be direct and clear. I am saying that the Great Commission was initially fulfilled in the first century by those who were uniquely qualified and personally called by Jesus to that commission. We today are the benefactors of their fulfilling of what they were instructed to do by Jesus. We could not, we cannot fulfill their commission. But please understand me. Jesus recognized we today and throughout history would benefit from his apostles fulfilling their commission as he prayed just before his capture. He was referring to his disciples and those who later believed because of their testimony when he said, quote, I do not pray for these alone, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, unquote. That's found in John 17, chapter 20. It's through their, the apostles' words, that his great commission, which was directed at the apostles of Jesus, was fulfilled. If the apostles would not have fulfilled their mission, outside of a few hundred first-century Israelis, no one would have ever heard of Jesus. There would be no Bible. There would be no good news that was passed on. That is the real significance of the Great Commission, that we've received the words of Jesus and what he taught through the apostles. That should be a source of celebration when we come across that passage in Scripture. Not that that should be laid on us 
as yet another thing that we need to be doing. What we read at the end of the book of Matthew is not that every Christian is called to be a missionary and spread the gospel throughout the world. That totally ignores what Jesus specifically said, who he was talking to, what was taking place in time, and the outcome that he expected. Has what Jesus said and commanded changed? No. It remains as documented by the apostles. We need to consider all he said in proper context. For example, for every time he may have told people to spread the gospel, he told them several times not to tell anyone about himself or what he had done. The so-called Great Commission is no different in our need to consider the context. Of course we want to tell people about Jesus now. But there was a time that he told them not to. He, for example, told them to only take the gospel to the uh, nation of Israel, to the sons of Israel, and not the Gentiles. Well, why don't we read that literally and as some sort of commission? Well, because we would totally be ignoring the context. The same thing, the same principle needs to be applied to this so-called Great Commission. Is the message of the gospel as passed on to us by the apostles, still just as important as ever. Of course it is. Are the called out still called to spread the gospel to the entire world? Well, some are. Those who are, are called prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the Bible. We know from the entirety of the New Testament that not all called out ones are called to such roles. Some may raise an objection here and say, well, you know, I'm scared. That that would go unspoken. But if the Great Commission was not personally directed at me, how am I supposed to know when Jesus is speaking to me in the Bible or only the disciples that walked with him when he was on this earth? And there are other examples of that. Well, let me tell you, that is a great question. It's a question that should be asked every time we read anything in the New Testament? The answer is, it first takes understanding that the Bible is not a magic book in which every scripture directly applies to me personally. Though we like to say we should act like Paul and then expect things to happen to us that happen to Paul, or like we superimpose the lives of so many other Bible characters over our lives or claim the promises for ourselves that were actually made to the Israelites or we personalize scripture for ourselves in so many other ways. Many of these things are misuses of scripture and rob us of understanding what the scripture is really trying to communicate to us. And I totally get we are trained in almost every Bible study book, uh, sermon, to do so, to, to read Scripture in that way. You know, the popular uh, navigator's Bible study method, it's an inductive Bible study method where we read ourselves into Scripture, and uh, the SOAP method, Scripture observations, I forget what the A stands for now, and prayer. It's a method that's all about what I just said. It's uh, applying Scripture directly to our lives, no matter if it's Jesus wept or uh, pick your scripture, we turn it into something that applies directly to us, even if it's just historical information. 
and we miss what's being communicated. Maybe we're missing a big thing about the character and nature of God because we're turning in the turning the Bible into the book of me. Anyway, I went down a rabbit trail there. Understanding scripture takes study. If we want to appropriately understand what we're reading in the Bible, determining who the intended audience is or was, and if something is history or illustrative of an ongoing command or principle, should always be in mind. The primary question during Bible study should never be, what does this scripture mean to you? It should always be, what was the original author trying to communicate to his original audience? And after we determine that, we can begin to consider what the ramifications of that is for you and I, if there are any ramifications, or if we are only now better informed about the bigger picture of what's going on in Scripture and able to better understand things that don't even apply directly to us. Let me back up a short distance for a second here and readdress the question, has what Jesus said and commanded changed? I answered no initially, but that isn't entirely true, depending on the translation of Bible you're reading. Now, please take some deep breaths here. I know this is a a tough subject from the get-go. Every evangelical Christian is going to have a problem with this topic I'm talking about today. Okay, deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. I'm going to explain. Countless evangelical churches cite the words, make disciples in their mission statements. Here's something that is going to upset you if you've not heard this before, and you have a history in the evangelical church. The Bible does not record any time, zero times, no times, null. When Jesus said, go and make disciples, that phrase, which is at the center of the Great Commission, is a mistranslation. Okay, before you go and you rush to turn to the pages in your Bible, which you're free to push pause and do so if you want, but I'm just going to tell you, you will find the words, make disciples, in most modern English translations of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19, if you want to look. However, the Greek phrase found in that verse, I'm going to mangle it here for you, um, but it's, it's, uh, Poriuthentes und mathetuset panta ta ethne. That translates word for word as, Go therefore teach all the nations. Go therefore teach all the nations. This phrase is the same in any original Greek text that I've reviewed. There is no cross-textual discrepancy argument to be made. They all say the same thing. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, I reviewed the Textus Receptus, the NA-27, the Westcott Hort. All are the same. This is one place where the King James Version of the Bible and all other English Bibles that were translated before it got their translations correct. That's what I read uh, a little earlier from the King James, and it did not say 
make disciples. It says teach all nations. So what? What's the significance of this? Well, first, it's a big one. Making disciples was not even the mission Jesus gave to his original disciples. It was to teach all nations. Secondly, there is nothing suggesting that any human can make any other human a willing disciple or student of Jesus. It sends the wrong message. It's quite to the contrary. Only God can make a disciple. To say that humans can make someone a willing student is not only an unbiblical thought, but an anti-biblical one. It's not in harmony with Scripture, which says that it's God who does the choosing and the Holy Spirit who does the wooing. It goes against the grain of Scripture. It's saying that man can accomplish something the Bible tells us that only God can do. Forcing Christianity on people or a belief on someone by trying to make them disciples by force has been the cause of many evil acts committed by the church. Replacing the work of God with the work of man is dangerous business. As the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, making a disciple, a human being who is a believer in and student of Jesus, is only accomplished through the power of God. Saying that we mere mortals are to make disciples places a burden on the backs of the called out that they are not equipped to handle. Man can teach and proclaim. Only God can make a true called out disciple. The phrase make disciples changes the essence of Jesus' command to the apostles when we have no right to make that change. Making disciples is a mistranslated phrase which is the product of the evangelical movement of the early 19th century. Their agenda, as noble as it may sound to us, was to emphasize the importance of personal individual evangelism. And that's why most modern translations now read, make disciples. Making disciples causes us to think in terms of individuals who will be willing followers of Jesus. However, teach all nations only suggests informing the world of the things Jesus said. It's the difference between, on the one hand, simply presenting information via the Bible and allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work, and on the other hand, attempting to convince or force an individual to believe in and follow Jesus. That's something that even the apostles couldn't do. It's so important here to see what the so-called Great Commission does and does not say. It does not say, command them, the nations, to do the things I have commanded you to do. The instructions to the apostles were to teach the nations to, here's a Greek word for you, tereo, all the nations, what Jesus had commanded. Once again, slowly here, because I'm throwing in some, a little bit of Greek here. Jesus commanded his apostles to teach the nations to tereo all the things that Jesus had done and commanded them to do. So what does 
terao mean? It means so much more than just to do something or simply follow a command or to abide by or rigidly follow the same commands or to imitate the actions of the apostles. That is how the meaning of this word tereo has typically been interpreted. It means to hold on to or to hold fast to something, to guard it, to keep it, to watch it, possess or detain it, prevent it from escaping, not to lose it. The implied meaning is to treasure it, treasure the things that Jesus has said. Of course, it is also implied that his followers should appropriately apply all those things that Jesus talked about to their own lives, but in light of wise interpretation and application of the scriptures that Jesus' words are recorded in. What Jesus said and he did and commanded his apostles to do should be internalized and clung to. We should prioritize holding on to it like it's the finest treasure we can guard. However, it doesn't mean that every word that we are to guard and hold on to was intended to be a command to anyone beyond the apostles. There's nothing to say that we are to simply just to try to emulate or reproduce the lives of the apostles in our own lives, to simply do what they were commanded to do. We are not the original apostles that Jesus gave this commission to, but we're also not relieved of our responsibility to determine how to apply what Jesus taught to our own lives, rather than simply assume everything he commanded of his original apostles, he commands us to do. As we hold on to what they were commissioned to pass on to us, we need to consider how what Jesus said to his apostles applies to us, the second-hand hearers of what the apostles personally witnessed and lived. In other words, it was not a commission for us to do things like many apostles. It was a commission for us to hold on to the things the apostles passed on to us. What we are to do is consider what that information means to us as followers of Jesus, not as his apostles. What many call the Great Commission was directed specifically at the only human beings qualified to carry out that Great Commission, the disciples of Jesus who walked with him on this earth and witnessed all he said and did. Not only had they witnessed it all, but Jesus promised them that the Holy Spirit would remind them of it all. The Bible is the product of their calling to teach all nations all that Jesus had commanded. The Bible is the written fulfillment of the Great Commission to the Apostles. It's only through the Bible that the Apostles continue to fulfill their Great Commission. As what they said is perpetually handed down. It's been given to us today. Well, with most of evangelical Christendom viewing the so-called Great Commission as the primary work of the church, many have sought to emulate the actions of Paul, 
the quintessential missionary evangelist. However, while countless Christians have zealously jumped into the fray of proclaiming Christ to the world, few pay attention to what Paul says about how evangelism really works. This is a key topic in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. Some believe that if an individual hears the gospel presented in a clear and logical way, that they will respond positively to it. However, Paul informs us that it's not the wisdom of words that leads people to Jesus. Rather, he says that God takes pleasure in saving people through the foolishness of the gospel message, not a superior argument. It's the power of God through the action of the Holy Spirit that saves people, not a clever conversational manipulation facilitated by Christian education or missionary training or crafty tactical salvation marketing plans which rely on pamphlets or snappy illustrations or formulas. Paul reminds the Corinthians of how this worked when he first visited them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. This is what that says. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul was endowed by the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the power of God, and he completely relied upon the Holy Spirit to give those who were elect to salvation the eyes to see and the ability to believe. It's through the power of God, not through a superior academic or philosophical argument, that the Corinthians, who had been called, and that's a quote, came to Jesus. It was also not through tent meetings, leaving tracts containing four spiritual laws in restrooms, or digging wells for the community, or providing free medical services, or even a long-term strategy of living among people and winning them over by setting an example of what it means to live for Christ. Paul speaks of those who came to salvation as those who had received a calling, the called out ones. He is clear that it's they who receive the calling and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit that will respond to the gospel. He tells us that without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, no one can understand the things of God. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he reminded them of their election by God to salvation, and how the gospel did not come to them in word only, but also in Quote, power and in the Holy Spirit. Unquote. Anyone who has spent years trying to convince people of the gospel know that there is no way to talk people into authentic salvation. Jesus and Paul completely understood this. It's as though Paul approached new places, not thinking that he was going to win people over to Christ but that he was there to discover who had been appointed to salvation by God. It's only after he discovered who had been elected that he taught them the things of God. The most we humans can do is, like Paul, discover who has been called to salvation by the Holy Spirit. 
For those called to evangelism, adopting this biblical view transforms the burden of accomplishing something that we are incapable of doing, making disciples, into participating into something like a treasure hunt for God's elect. However, although it relieves us of the burden of talking someone into belief, it still may involve presenting the gospel in some way. You know, it often does. Again, not out of some religious obligation to fulfill the Great Commission, but only if the Holy Spirit calls one to do so, and according to God's timing. It's the Holy Spirit who makes disciples, not humans. Well, let's talk about those who were the products of the Great Commission of the Apostles way back in the beginning. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, Those who heeded the call of Jesus at Pentecost, quote, continue steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, unquote. Meaning, they were soaking up and retaining the Apostles' teaching that the Apostles were commanded by Jesus to teach. Remember that tereo word? They were doing it. This isn't surprising given the Apostles' unique qualifications and the recent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who was testifying to them that what the apostles were trying to say was true. And this was all while the apostles were performing signs and wonders. They were credentialed by God. It was through the event of Pentecost that the apostles were immediately able, immediately able, to fulfill their commission to teach all nations. It was the Holy Spirit who made fulfilling Jesus' instructions to the apostles possible. In the book of Acts, you know, Luke's version of Jesus' final instructions to his disciples reads this way, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's found in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. More words from Jesus specifically which only pertain to the apostles and not disciples throughout the age. It's funny how someone will ignore that fact. Unless, of course, you're going to tell me that this prophetic word to the apostles is actually to you and I. Because after all, when was the last time that you were going to be a witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth after you received this power from the Holy Spirit? This was a prophetic message to the apostles. Luke's version of the Great Commission fits very nicely with what happened with the apostles just days after Jesus spoke his words to them. The Holy Spirit, in fact, did come over them in the upper room, just as Jesus had said. And they went downstairs and spread the gospel to people from, quote, every nation under heaven, unquote. The first execution of the Apostles' Commission had been carried out by the end of Pentecost, just a few days after it was given to them by Jesus. Some still may claim to be apostles, but all indications are that today the apostles of Jesus are all long dead and gone. We can no longer sit directly under their teaching in person. However, their teaching is contained in the Bible and we still have the fulfillment of the so-called Great Commission in written form. The Bible can be read or listened to and studied anywhere in the world today. I can sit steadfastly under the teaching of the apostles via the Bible, either by myself or with others, 
at home, at the lake, on a bus, on the treadmill, in front of the computer, lying in bed sick, on a break at work, and yes, even in church. Today, in the evangelical church, the highest burden that they've placed on their own shoulders is that of the 19th century invention known as the Great Commission. The teaching that says that every member of the church, rather than the Holy Spirit, are responsible for spreading the gospel and making disciples. Yet, Paul taught something quite different. While some are specifically called to evangelism, and like Peter wrote, we may all be called to be ready to give an answer about our faith, not everyone has been appointed by God or been commanded to be an evangelist. But listen, if you were, do it with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. Absolutely. Same thing goes if God has convicted you through His Holy Spirit to be a missionary in a far-off land. So long as it's God and His Holy Spirit and not guilt imposed upon you by a clever sermon <laughs> you know, that a man delivered, then do it with all your heart and soul and mind. You had better do it. If that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, please do it on the family of God's behalf do it. You may receive a temporary, quick calling. The Holy Spirit wants to utilize you one day, and you are what He has at His disposal to talk to somebody, and it's normally not your calling. Please pay attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit in that regard. But Paul wrote that it's not the wisdom of words that leads people to Jesus, but rather the appointment of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the lost do not possess the ability to understand the gospel, let alone believe it. If what I've said in this episode has greatly upset you, I'm on one level sorry, I don't like to see anyone upset. On the other level, may it move you to look into this for yourself a little more closely carefully, prayerfully consider what I've said today. Well, the Great Commission is going to come up again in future episodes, but that's going to do it for now. And that's it for the Gospel of Matthew. Next time, we're going to move on to other Gospels. But until then, may God richly bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com, or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.